At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello and welcome to a new episode in the New Books and Gender Studies podcast, part of the New Books Network. Um, I'm one of your co-hosts, Kyle McMillan, and today I have the pleasure of being joined by Assistant Professor Trent McNamara from Texas A&M University, um, talking about his new book, Birth Control and American Modernity, A History of Popular Ideas. Professor, how are you doing today? Just great. Thanks for having me, Kyle. Yeah, and I kind of wanted to start out by talking about sort of your academic background. How did you get interested in this topic? And ultimately, what what drove you to write this book? Um, So I got to this topic uh, kind of sideways. I went to graduate school uh, at Columbia, and I went there initially to do uh, environmental history. I was going to write about uh, big infrastructure, uh, especially in cities and the environmental movement. Um, but I eventually decided I wanted to write about uh, sort of big ideas that were important to quote unquote ordinary people. So sort of how uh, people like you and me, uh, so to speak, uh, apply philosophical principles to finding a good life. And so I was still interested in uh, environmental questions. And so I tried to find a topic where I could find uh, people talking, especially about the moral authority of nature. Um, I found that in birth control, but then eventually the the book became a much broader topic. Uh, We can't really encompass the uh, motivations for birth control uh, with nature. So it became a much uh, more sprawling topic. So... Uh, I guess the short answer is, like many people, I went to grad school to do one thing and ended up doing something just utterly different. (laughs) Right. I think that that process is pretty common, uh, at least with some of my colleagues as well. Um, So ultimately, this book is about, sir, you started to describe it there, um, is about the process in which birth control becomes sort of a popular idea or gains popularity 
among, you know, quote unquote, lay people. So what were the attitudes around birth control at the turn of the 20th century, sort of where you begin your book? And what did you use to find out? So uh, to take the second part first, uh, the sources I used um, kind of fall between the uh, sources or data that are used by kind of the two big approaches to this question about why people control births. Um, So on the one hand, you have historical demographers who use large quantifiable data sources, um, social indicators and that kind of thing. Um, On the other hand, you have traditional narrative historians who tend to focus more on uh, the records, uh, the words and deeds of uh, people who uh, worked in the birth control sphere professionally as activists. Um, What I tried to do is kind of bridge the gap between those two fields. Um, There are two fields that have enormous literatures but don't really talk to each other that much. And so I tried to kind of bridge the gap between them by finding sources uh, that were uh, that, that existed in large volumes, uh, like personal letters uh, or field reports uh, or re- replies to a radio show, for example, where there were hundreds of uh, replicated sources written by um, ordinary people to someone who had a vested interest. Uh, so it, it's kind of these, these bulk uh, qualitative sources. Um, and what I found in those sources uh, is it's a, it's a tremendously complex story. You know, we tend to think of birth control as being uh, about these principled activists who stood up uh, on the soapbox and said, you know, this is right. This is important. Uh, this is what uh, women should have. This is what people should have. And that's a very important part of the story. Um, but what you see in the kind of the, the citizen movement or the mass movement, uh, which I argue is is uh, more indispensable to the ultimate success of the larger movement, is a much more ambivalent, uh, qualified movement of people who don't really think of themselves as for birth control, but just have their own motives to to use it and to use it in, in a increasingly over time. So. Uh, you know, we can talk about those motives in, in detail if you want, but uh, it's a sort of tangle of ideas about uh, nature and God and the intersection of moral principle with economics. So not so much about economic rationality, which a lot of the demographers are into, uh, but about the rightful uses of money. So no one really doubts that having a smaller family is rational. Uh, there's not much debate about whether it's costly to have kids. No one really thinks like, oh, I'm a farmer, so I'm going to have kids because it's economically rational. Everyone agrees that kids are costly. It's about the correct ratio of income to kids. How much of your money should you plow into kids? And how much should you put into other uh, avenues to to a good life? So there's all these different ideas. Um One of the key points the book makes is that for uh, ordinary people, again, that's just a distinction to elites, uh, for ordinary people, a lot of those ideas get kind of bundled together into a convenient package, sort of nugget, uh, that has to do with the idea of the times changing or of modern life. 
the people in these letters or in letters to the editor or whatever it was, they're constantly talking about how the times demand greater control over fertility. This is sort of juggernaut of history that pushes people inevitably towards this outcome. And they're not really helpless, but the way they judge that modern push towards smaller families, is that part of the good in modern life? Is it progress? Is it part of the bad? Is it decadence? That's a major factor in how they ultimately act in terms of uh, the size of their family. So these changes, you know, people perceive secularization, uh, they perceive uh, greater uh, economic rationality, uh, they perceive less deference to nature or sort of fatalistic view of the universe. Um, but all of those tend to be bundled together into this meta narrative about history changing uh, flux, demanding certain things of people, uh, which they would be. Uh, which they which they resist at their own risk. Yeah, and one of the interesting sort of uh, convergences between um, a few of these ideas, especially ones about nature and sort of um, ideas that um, sort of elites in society are putting out, is the role that at least at the beginning of this century that Teddy Roosevelt plays in this sort of meta narrative, right? So. He sort of, you know, picks up the idea, but really popularizes this sort of race suicide idea. So what did that have to do with sort of the broader um, notions about modernity and birth control? Yeah, so uh, Roosevelt, despite not being an ordinary person in the terms that I'm using, uh, is very much, uh, he articulates this idea. Um he says, you know, I think the quote is, the tendencies of our time inevitably discourage uh, large families. Uh, it's just about whether we should resist that tendency or not. Um, and, you know, for him, the answer was obviously, uh, yes, we need to resist it. So he was a, Roosevelt was a kind of a, a acute student of demographic trends. Uh, around the time he begins to look at the presidency, uh, vital statistics are getting better. Uh, demographers are beginning to put together a long-range uh, trend line in uh, U.S. fertility uh, that points from you know around seven in uh, seven uh, children per woman in uh, eighteen hundred to about three and a half in nineteen hundred. Um, and you know, for Roosevelt and his allies. That does not look like a trend line towards a kind of benign equilibrium at, you know, say one and a half or two or two and a half children. Uh, that's a trend line towards zero. Um, so they, Roosevelt uh, uh, popularizes the term race suicide uh, for that trend line towards zero. Uh, he invests it with significance, uh, not just, it, it, we, we hear the rate term race suicide, uh, you think about racism and a uh, sort of uh, white nationalist idea, which has been revived today. Uh, Roosevelt means something a little bit different. Uh, as, as you know, uh, the ideas of race back then were uh, more fluid and could mean more things. Uh, what he essentially means is um, the suicide of people who are not recent immigrants, not black and not 
uh, white, native, and very poor. So kind of the enfranchised, uh, civically engaged majority, um, which he sees as essential to the American experiment. If these people uh, don't reproduce themselves, we can't assimilate new immigrants, we can't kind of continue this uh, world-changing experiment uh, in democracy. Um, so when, when, he, when he pipes up, you know, this is a president. People are used to the president talking about, uh, you know, tariffs and how many ships we have in the Navy and stuff. All of a sudden, he's talking about uh, people's intimate behavior in the bedroom, essentially. This is a, this is a major moment, um, and it sparks this major debate that allowed me, in turn, to kind of look at ordinary people's ideas about birth control. Yeah, and... You know, as you progress in the book to the 1920s and 1930s, sort of this post-Roosevelt um, time, um, you kind of, you say that a birth control had sort of gained this sort of muted legitimacy. So how did it sort of get to that point and why was it still sort of muted at this point? Um, we're, you know, so we're talking about these very slow moving and again, uh, ambivalent processes. Um, you know, I, I, I say in the book that a lot of this is a debate between uh, moderates over the definition of moderation. There's almost nobody in this debate uh, at the kind of local community level who thinks that birth control is always good and should be maximized or that it's always bad and should be banned like alcohol was in this period. So instead, it's just kind of this debate over these shades of gray, you know, uh, say, uh, you know, my husband's a clerk and, you know, we're not really struggling, but we have a kind of small apartment. Uh, You know, do we put two kids in the same room? Uh, do we, uh, can we reasonably educate them? How much, uh, should we let them kind of just try their own hand in life? How much should we try to give them a leg up socially to advance, which is sort of the, you know, the ultimate American dream to, to have your kids do better than, than you do. Um, so there, there's always, there's just this, this core ambiguity and yet you have a gradual shift as birth control becomes more popular at the local level, as it's something that I can sit in my kitchen and tell my husband uh, I support or tell my wife I support, um, as that becomes something I can talk to my, you know, my family and my friends about, or even talk about at a church picnic or whatever, um, it's becoming more legitimate. Um, to the point where eventually the anti-birth control laws have never been especially effective uh, are formally repealed, and you have a kind of uh, a, a making real of what had already become a folk reality that birth control was uh, both popular and informally legitimate. Yeah, and part of, I think... Uh goes into these shades of gray that people were negotiating sort of slowly over time is sort of what was actually meant by birth control, right? Because we don't yet have, you know, at this point in the book, we do not have sort of what has become 
shorthand for birth control, uh, which is the pill, right? So what exactly were people, um, you know, what was in that broad definition of what people were considering birth control in all of these gray areas? Yeah, that's a great question. So, I mean, that's one of the things I struggle with in this book. Um, it's, it's, it's a definitional issue because when we hear the term birth control now, we kind of read backwards through the 1960s and think of it as uh, a technology, and it's particularly it's the pill, and it's a technology uh, sort of for and by women. Um, and that definition uh, has a lot to do with Margaret Sanger, who we can talk about or not later, um, but it does not fit especially well on to the phenomenon of just controlling births. There's birth control, there's the, there's the technology, and there's the phenomenon. Um, and I think it's, it's hard to get at how birth control becomes legitimate unless you're talking about the phenomenon. But technology is kind of, is sort of downstream of the larger phenomenon. So um, when you're talking about the, like how people control births uh, before we have birth control in the, the modern colloquial sense, uh, people have lots of methods. Um, they're the most, com- most common methods of, of, of birth control uh, before uh, the pill are, um, are condoms and uh, douches, often with uh, spermicides, and then uh, the kind of perennial immortal technique of coitus interruptus or withdrawal, uh, which of course is going, it's, it goes, goes back so far that it's discussed in the Bible, uh, God smites Onan for that sin. Um, there's a court case from 1771 in Massachusetts where a man uh, facing a uh, paternity suit says to the court, quote, uh, I fucked her once, but I minded my pullbacks. Uh, so this is, uh, it's, it's sort of this, this ancient technique, um, which is in wide circulation uh, in the 1910s or 20s or 30s and well before and then there are other techniques like the use of abortifacients and kind of magical methods, uh, which are sort of on the uh, on a border between uh, what we might consider birth control and the wider control of births. Uh, if you want to discuss those, we can, but uh, we can move on to. Yeah, well, uh, part of my next question kind of brings up the role that folks like uh, Sanger had in sort of this larger conversation, but you know, sticking within this, you know, period of the early decades of the 20th century, one of the interesting gray areas, or I guess uh, what some people might consider, you know, contradictory uh, parts of this of this movement toward popularity for birth control is the role that um, the eugenics movement, but also early feminist activists had to shape this debate. So how did these two camps sort of shape the debate and work together either in conjunction or, or in sort of contradiction to one another? Um, so the, the, you know, the, there's been a lot of writing about the alliances between uh, feminist activists and the birth control movement, uh, most notably Sanger, who kind of uh, steals the show, uh, mostly for good reason. She's very prominent. 
their alliances with the Gen X movement. Um, I, I'd say they were both very important. Uh, you know, the reason Sanger courted uh, eugenicists uh, was not out of any independent conviction that they were right. She was very sympathetic to the poor and saw her movement as serving the poor and saw them as unfairly maligned uh, by elitist eugenicists. Uh, she also tactically saw those people as important to recruiting conservative opinion to her side. Um, speaking about it in a purely tactical sense, I think they probably performed some of that task for her. They made it possible for, you know, say, say you run a salon in Cincinnati and you have tea every week uh, and you're the wife of a conservative politician. You could say, well, birth control is acceptable because it's going to cut down on the numbers of the poor uh, that we have here in our slums. And that's going to benefit uh, not just us, the elite who are worried about those, those poor people. Um, it's also going to benefit the poor themselves. So if you take it beyond the level of elite activists, uh, even then it, it's able to change the conversation a bit at the, at the local community level. Uh, I think um, uh, de dedicated activists like Sanger perform a similar function. You know, part of the book's point is that it's maybe not entirely historically uh, accurate to put Sanger in the center of the birth control story. You know, if you, if you read a U.S. history textbook, Sanger very often more or less is the birth control story. And she's not that indispensable to the wider movement, to the reasons that the birth control movement is a success. Um, but she is tremendously important uh, both to uh, thousands of individual poor women who had not, for various reasons, been able to acquire effective contraception. And she's also important in this kind of conversation moving um, uh, aspect that you, that you asked me about. Um, she does kind of uh, help to set the margins of debate um, so that someone who supports birth control in a moderate way can say, you know, well, I, I'm no Margaret Sanger. She's a radical, but I do think that such and such and such and such is, is a good argument for birth control. Um, so she kind of, she, you know, she, she kind of redefines where the center is by at least initially taking a radical stand. So I, th I think she's important uh, to the movement. Uh, you know, if I had if I had written this book uh, in a historiographical void, and I just wanted to write uh, anything about birth control, I think I might very well have written a book that was much more about her story, uh, just because it's it's interesting and I, I I enjoy the ability to write about an individual person and their. Uh, moral struggle for, for a cause I support. Um, but as it was, that story has been told many times. And I thought the kind of wider context for the movement's success was historiographically more needed and important. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. 
Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Yeah, and part of the reason that, um, you know, you bring up that argument that Sanger might not be the end-all be-all in this story is that you say that, you know, in the early decades of the 20th century, birth control isn't necessarily seen as a women's issue, right? That's some, that's another thing that we sort of read backwards in history, right? When we think about debates around birth control. So why, why was it the case that this hadn't been yet defined as sort of a women's issue, quote unquote? Well, so uh, there, are, there are some practical reasons for that. Um, so Sanger emerges in the 1910s. Uh, and for her, she, it's it's always from the start and to the end. It's a it's a women's issue. So other less prominent activists uh, they encourage her to to give up on on what they call uh, sex exclusion or antagonism, and she declines. She says, uh, "No, this is a women's issue, and it's a women's issue alone." Um, and that's kind of been, been written into the historiography ever since, in particular because Sanger has a big role uh, in developing the pill. So that kind of Sanger pill story is um, is a big story right now. Um, but up until her period, there are these practical reasons why birth control is not particularly considered a women's movement. It's not a men's movement either, um, but it's considered this kind of uh, movement around these big macro historical ideas, these big moral choices people face in modernity. Um, because, for example, um, although women uh, often were more morally supportive of birth control as a right that women should have, uh, in, say, 1895, uh, often men make uh, consequential household decisions. They're the ones who ultimately have a say over whether, you know, we have three kids or four. Also, uh, men are responsible for their family's economic well-being. Uh, they are held to account if they don't support their children up to the standards of their communities. Um, birth control also relied heavily on male methods uh, like coitus interruptus or condoms. Um, and then uh, maybe most important is that uh, social norms in that period made it very difficult for women to uh, talk about uh, contraception, including with their husbands. So it was, there's a much higher potential social cost for you as a woman to go out to your, to your pharmacist, for example, and ask about buying a contraceptive or to ask uh, your mother or your friends because you risked uh, seeming sexually overactive, uh, prurient, calculating, unwomanly, uh, whereas a man informally uh, could go out and do that. And he just seems like he's kind of uh, street smart, virile, uh, like he just he knows he's savvy in the ways of the world. Um, so for all those reasons, you don't really see it, it's only, it's 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 very surprising in a way. Like when I went into this research, I fully expected to see this framed entirely as a woman's topic in uh, popular sources. 
but it's really not. Uh, and it's, it's framed as this issue that concerns uh, both sexes about these big moral historical changes uh, from generation to generation. It's about God and nature um, and, uh, and time, but not really about men or women in particular. So the, actually went through and tagged all this stuff like there's i have tables upon tables of uh of what these documents say and it is it's it's more common for people to frame it as a women's issue than a men's issue but for many people it is a men's issue and then in both of those cases are just vastly less common than to frame it as this larger uh kind of civilizational issue yeah, and I, I think that's just such an interesting point. Um, so one of the um, interesting source, uh, like set of source materials that you found or utilized was um, sort of the this journal, the Birth Control Review. So what was that and how did it shape the public consciousness around birth control? So Birth Control Review was Sanger's publication. Uh, she was the editor uh, and kind of the spirit behind it. Um, it, it was an advocacy publication. Um, if you were a member of the American Birth Control League, uh, her organization, uh, you got a subscription. Um, one of the main things that the Birth Control Review did is print letters that Sanger received from ordinary people who wanted contraception. <laughs> Uh, who wanted advice from her. Um, she received many thousands of these letters. Uh, it's hard to say exactly how many, but it's probably in the low to middle hundreds of thousands of letters uh, over her career, with a huge peak in the early 20s uh, when she published two books uh, that implied that writing to her might get you uh, better contra- uh, advice on contraceptives. Um, the... Letters, um, so the, the, this, this, the review never had a huge circulation, so it's, it's not going to have the same public impact as just an ordinary newspaper article on, on this topic. Um, but the letters are important in the sense that they give a window on how ordinary people uh, justify contraception to themselves, how they saw it. Um, there's a lot of uh, of material on poverty, on economic struggles, even outside of poverty, and then on health, uh, especially women's health issues around pregnancy, uh, both physical health at a time when pregnancy was very dangerous uh, and their mental health. Um, the trouble with these letters is that Sanger destroyed virtually all of them. So hundreds of thousands of letters are just gone. Um, uh, the justification being we think that she saw them as medical records that had to be destroyed. However, uh, the letters that survived are not representative. She said that they were, that they represented the letters of everyone, uh, but the ones, ones that have survived and ones that were written to affiliate organizations and to other birth control activists uh, are not like the ones she published. The ones she published are the most poignant, understandably. Uh, they come from uh, married women who are very poor and are in, are in dire straits. 
Um, but most of the letters she received uh, were probably uh, much shorter, uh, contained little or no justification uh, because people already saw birth control as being locally legitimate. And, you know, you get letters like, uh, you know, uh, dear Dr. Sanger, uh, are, uh, is this brand of condoms the latest in terms of birth control signed, you know, Hilda Bennett from Tennessee? So it's just like one line. Uh, it's basically treating Sanger as if she were some kind of sort of higher level national pharmacist uh, who had access to incrementally better contraception uh, as opposed to the way Sanger sort of saw herself, which was as leading this sort of future facing movement that was going to change everything uh, for women in particular, especially poor women uh, forever. Yeah. And, you know, one of the things that you sort of end that chapter on or, you know, sort of around that point in the book is you, you start to sort of anticipate, or at least what I saw is an anticipation of somebody reading the book and being like, wait, wasn't there a baby boom there in the, in the middle of the century? So what, what is the baby boom sort of, how does that, um, intercept with these uh, notions around birth control and the gaining popularity of them? So the baby boom is really one of history's mysteries. Like no, nobody really knows why the baby boom happened. Uh, I was at a conference recently where somebody was just asking this question and I'm not sure I've ever been to a conference where the answer is just genuinely, we're not sure. Uh, but that was, that was more or less the answer. Um, you know, I, I speculate a bit. That's not the topic of my book. Um, I'm interested in this topic. You know, if, if you have this like big macro historical sense that history wants you to have fewer kids uh, that reaches back into the 19th century and through the early 20th, um, you know, why does it suddenly reverse um, in the 40s and 50s? Uh, into the early, early 60s, before then mysteriously cratering again to a much lower birth rate. Um, I think part of the answer to that is that we tend to assume the, the baby boom is about people uh, sort of walking out and suddenly wanting to have much larger families. Uh, it's, it's not so much about that as it's about more people total having families, uh, having children at any number. So it's more about more people having uh, what was by then considered the normal two or three child family um, and that bringing the overall averages up. Um, so, so there's a little bit less of a phenomenon to explain in that sense. And then I also think that, you know, what we're talking about here with these macro historical issues it's not based on a historical understanding like you or I might have of history. It's based on these narratives, which are largely imaginary, uh, almost like the narratives that we write for ourselves about our own lives, um, except uh, social and historical. And because they're kind of imaginary, they can, they can sort of flip on, uh, you know, on a dime and, you know, so it's plausible to me uh, that someone like like Elaine Tyler May, a historian, writes about uh, the security culture after World War II. It's plausible to me that people started to tell themselves a, 
started to tell themselves a different story after uh, World War II, uh, one that was more about sort of uh, contributing uh, babies, I guess, uh, bodies, biological stock to this uh, victorious nation that had to come together uh, against communism. Um, but uh, the short answer in deference to those people I saw at the conference is, is that we don't really know. <laughs> so yeah, that, that's another book, another person. <laughs> right. Um, and the final two chapters before you get to your conclusion, you really outlined two ways that the... Um, talk around birth control, the sort of wider acceptance of it as a topic, just um, in general, becomes a lot more mobile. So um, how did that, you know, you have one chapter that's called missionary work, right? So so what were, what was happening that people were sort of going out into the world and preaching, you know, so, sort of the quote unquote good word about birth control? Um, yeah, so I, I write about two people uh, who did that, one of whom was an obstetrician uh, named James Cooper, who Sanger hired essentially as her emissary to the provinces. You know, she was in New York. Uh, she had a reputation for radicalism that prevented her from reaching uh, more conservative uh, audiences and especially doctors. Um, and so... She convinced uh, her, her husband, uh, Noah Slee, who was also uh, her major financial benefactor in the 20s, uh, to finance this obstetrician's uh, tour around the U.S. And he went to hundreds of cities uh, and spoke to both medical and uh, lay audiences. And then he wrote reports after these uh, Talks, which is what I use. So I'm not really interested in him so much as in his audiences and their kind of halting acceptance, uh, their discussions about whether uh, a respectable you know, doctor uh, or salon uh, host in Detroit in 1927 uh, could sponsor a talk by a pro birth control speaker and retain their good standing in the community. Um, so, you know, that, that's, that's very interesting. Uh, you know, I think that speakers like Cooper who went out and beat the bushes, uh, did make a difference. Uh, but as Cooper himself reported, a lot of that difference had already been, you know, been made at the local level, um, often without knowledge of the formal movement for which he spoke. Um, and often with suspicion of that formal movement as a kind of half-known uh, radical New York City uh, concern. Uh, and the other one uh, you mentioned is uh, Ben Lindsay, uh, who was a famous for his work with the juvenile justice and who, in 1927, when the radio was a newfangled invention, uh, went on the airwaves uh, speaking basically to the middle third of the country, the Great Plains, um, and said, uh, birth control is great. We need it for uh, uh, various reasons. Um, it's going to help us. It's going to liberate us. It's the, uh, the libertarian option in a country that, um, that values freedom. Um, and it's the progressive option. It represents progress, not decadence. Uh, and 
to his radio show, you have uh, hundreds of people uh, right in. The, the station asked for their feedback in part to distance themselves from the controversy around the topic. Um, so you have people right in from, you know, rural North Dakota, uh, these small towns and farms on the Great Plains, uh, places where you wouldn't necessarily expect there to be a lot of pro-birth control sentiment, especially for this, which was the first radio address uh, to support uh, birth control in this country. Uh, but it's mostly positive. It's uh, about two-thirds positive feedback. Um, and then some neutral, and uh, there still is considerable opposition to to birth control. That's a kind of interesting window on what these um, you know middle class radio owning uh, plains people thought about this topic. The first time that many of them uh, hear it publicly discussed, at least on the radio. Right, and you know now that we. Uh, sort of once you end that chapter, we then sort of bump up against um, sort of the era that we sort of colloquially think about when we think about sort of debates around birth control. Um, and then you start talking about, um, you know, how the ways that birth control is debated today and sort of going forward in sort of this global age we find ourselves in um, is going to be, you know, a continuation of this, but so could you sort of describe um, what you think about um, sort of this going forward look at, at birth control? Yeah. So I, you know, I talk about how, uh, you know, birth control is strongly associated with modernity and modernization in the period I'm talking about by just regular people, not, um, modernization theorists, not academics. Um, and that association is still very strong today. I think people associate uh, birth control with modernity and vice versa. Modernity is birth control. So essentially, the more progress a place has undergone, the more advanced the place is, the more developed uh, the smaller the families. And then conversely, the smaller the families you have in the place, the more developed the place will be. It's just, it's, it's like so inscribed in our culture that it's just an automatic taken for granted idea. Development is towards this ideal where you have, among other things, uh, a limited family, which in turn brings the economic benefits, brings the uh, or reflects the uh, social um, liberalism of our society and the things that we hold dear. Um, and with the point I'm making at the end when I bring things into the present in the epilogue is just that uh, although modernity and birth control have long been viewed as mutually complementary, they buttress each other, that uh, as uh, birth control spreads, and in particular as the most developed or advanced countries uh, sustain decade over decade of very low fertility, so so way below replacement level, um, that that association uh, could become uh, mutually harmful. That's not 
to be taken for granted by any means. You know, demographic trends are very unpredictable. Nobody knew the baby boom was coming. No, absolutely, like zero people predicted that. Um, so this could all change, but it also could um, be dangerous uh, for modern liberalism and for reproductive freedom, um, reproductive rights, um, in the sense that if uh, countries like takes take South Korea, this kind of miracle of modernization that that uh, is kind of the story many other countries want to emulate in many ways. Now, South Korea's um, total fertility rate just fell below one child um, per per woman. So that's um, you know that's a fertility rate that will see its pop its its baseline population. Uh, fall by around half every generation. So that's not necessarily a catastrophe for Korea. There's ways to manage that. Um, But what it does do, I think, is make it easier for a lot of demographically fearful populists, which we're seeing today, to paint uh, liberal, modern, free societies as being unsustainable over time. Um, so you, you to paint it as kind of a trade-off between, uh, yes, you have personal freedom, you have wealth, um, but ultimately uh, your family, your extended clan, uh, your religion, whatever you hold dear is going to die off. It's a, it's a sort of a, a comfortable death cult. Um, and that is a very uh, dangerous argument. I think that's, that's a sort of core threat to liberal uh, democracies uh, that we have to address. And it's harder to address uh, if we take a narrow view of birth control and what it is and what it means. It's more about uh, laws and technologies. Uh, it's, it's easier to address if we think about birth control as this wider phenomenon and popular ideas um, that's uh, very often about modernity itself. Yeah. And I think that's a really interesting and poignant way to sort of end your book. And I know that we've taken up a lot of your time today. So I just have a sort of a couple remaining questions. Um, So we we covered a lot of topics, um, you know, in your book. And I'm just wondering if you had somebody read your book and you want them to have sort of one big takeaway, what do you think that would be? Um, uh, that, that birth control is a, uh, a, a bigger and older phenomenon than we typically think. Um, it is fragile, as I just said, I think that's, that's a key component of, of, uh, uh to take away from the book. Um, but it's also uh, heartening uh, if you support reproductive rights um, that the movement is ultimately built on a widespread uh, social foundation. It's, uh, I think, more resilient uh, than either uh, its friends or its enemies uh, tend to tend to assume. Um, but again, I, I don't want. I, I resisted making that the conclusion of the book. Um, I didn't 
as you saw, you know, the conclusion ends with that point, and then the epilogue is about why, you know, we're still in a very precarious situation. It's not just about uh, limited limited interventions in the law. Um, it's also about these popular ideas, which are spreading everywhere. It's no longer uh, like low fertility is no longer just a kind of local parochial uh, chauvinist concern of a few Western elites. You know, about half the world's people now live in uh, countries with below replacement fertility. So it's um, become, going to become a more and more global phenomenon. We have to think of uh, big ideas to keep the, the movement healthy. Yeah. And, you know, just for my final question, if people, um, you know, are really interested in the topics you bring up in this book um, and they want to either learn more about this topic or sort of adjacent topics, um, what are sort of three book recommendations you can give our audience today? Um, the, uh, the first one that comes to mind um, is uh, a book uh similar to mine in some ways, but about a much uh, earlier period. It's by Susan Klepp. It's called Revolutionary Conceptions. Um, And it's about the earliest uh, Americans to decide to have smaller families. Um, uh, Susan Klepp is, uh, she's avowedly a bit uh, constrained by the number of sources that are available uh, circa 1800. Um, but it's very interesting. You know, she works from letters and from popular ideas, too. Um, it's, it's a wonderful, uh, well-written book. Um, and then if, if I was going to move forward a little bit in time, uh, it's a book called um, Devices and Desires by uh, Andrea uh, Tone, um, which is about sort of how birth control happened, the devices um, and the desires uh, that, that people had to to control fertility. Um, and then lastly, there's the kind of uh, the, the central book uh, in birth control history. Uh, this is to some extent the book that I'm, I'm reacting to and trying to, to both correct and complement. Um, and that is uh, Linda Gordon's uh, book, uh, the most recent version of which is called uh, The Moral Property of Women. Um, and this book, this book is more geared um, to the activist story, uh, to Sanger and to people like her and to her uh, activist opponents. Um, but it's it's just a wonderful story. Um, it does it is able to get into individual uh, biography. Um, and while I don't think that. Uh, the activist story is really central to the larger birth control story. Um, I do think it's important among other reasons uh, because when you talk about Sanger, you do have an individual example of a person uh, taking moral action, you know, saying this is something I think is right and I'm going to pursue it. Um, and that's not the story of the popular movement. Again, that's, that's usually much more ambivalent. Um, but it does underscore the idea that it's about individuals and what they think is right. It's not just about big social indicators uh, and averages. Well, those all sound like excellent book recommendations. But first, before they check out that, I encourage um, everyone listening today to check out 
uh, Dr. McNamara's book, Birth Control and American Modernity. Dr. McNamara, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks so much, Kyle. I really appreciate it.